What is real for folks every day is the need for good transit and healthy, clean water and good schools. And it is true today that folks who are obsessing about QAnon or Pizzagate are not focused on schools and transit and clean water. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Today, I get the chance to welcome two former guests back to the show. Both are concerned that Democrats are neglecting the key battlefield of state legislatures and are working hard to direct money and attention to that part of the ballot. The first is Vicki Hausman, who's co-founder of Forward Majority, a Democratic super PAC, which spends many millions of dollars to help win state legislative majorities for Democrats in key states. The second is Daniel Squadron. He's executive director of the States Project, which is working on winning state legislative majorities and working with them to achieve goals for the common good. You can learn more about Daniel and Vicki if you listen to my more biographic episodes with them, numbers 336 and 409. I asked Daniel and Vicki about what they've been doing through their respective organizations since we last spoke and why State Ledge remains so underprioritized even now. You should listen. So, a quick word from our sponsor and then my interview with Vicki and Daniel, both working to help Democrats do better in the state legislatures. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Vicky and Daniel, welcome. You're both return guests. So normally I ask people to give their biographies and talk a little bit about their path to their role, but we've done that with both of you back in 2019 and 2020. Just catch me up for a little bit. Why don't we start with Vicky? Since we talked some couple of years ago, what's happened with your work in the progressive movement? What's new? Thanks so much for having me on again. It's always a pleasure to be with you and uh, to have the opportunity to lift up the importance of the work that both we and, and Daniel are doing in the state legislative landscape. Where we left off last time, Nathaniel, was we had started Ford Majority back in 2017. We were very much um, obsessed with the idea that state legislative power was one of the biggest untapped levers in our democracy and saw that very clearly with redistricting and the threats of gerrymandering in states where Republicans had full control on the redistricting process. But increasingly in uh, the war on voting rights, the laws of voter suppression that were percolating and spreading across Republican-controlled state legislatures, and increasingly the extremism and undemocratic practices. 
you know, since we last spoke, we we did all that we could to really affect that. Uh, we mobilized about $50 million. We concentrated that all on a set of undervalued races that lay squarely in the path to flipping chambers where Democrats had no power at the time. Made a ton of progress. Um, collectively, along with many partners and allies, helped flip about 65 seats from Republicans in the most consequential states. Uh, helped win the two chambers in Virginia again, with many great partners and allies alongside us. Um, and I think learned, learned a ton about the possible and also the, the real challenges we face in terms of the kind of historic underinvestment in the state legislative battleground, where we're up against 40 or so years of Republicans really understanding that state legislatures are the foundation of power. They are not an afterthought. They are not what you fund in... Um, the final two weeks of an election cycle when you feel like everything else has been funded. They are where you start. They are the root and foundation of power. So we'll get more into it in this conversation, I'm sure, but we came out of the 2020 election just really thinking about the scoreboard and the remaining balance of power and what it really takes to dislodge Republicans where it matters most. A big piece of that is building for the long term, not just investing in individual cycles, but having a 10-year strategy and plan and thinking about the untapped multi-cycle levers for change and what needs to happen beyond uh, individual candidates and campaigns and investments in individual races that really fortifies the ecosystem and boosts democratic performance. Because what we saw in 2020 was, you know, we'd made a ton of progress collectively, but there was a set of elusive majority-making districts that didn't flip, even in a fairly good electoral environment. Um, and so that's been our provocation, if you will. Um, and I'll, I'll share more on our strategy in the course of the conversation. But that's what we've been up to and really launching and building a new strategy and thinking about what are the innovative approaches that can drive outpaced change and progress at this essential moment for our democracy. Daniel, would you mind catching me up on what you've been up to? Sure. A lot of overlap there between what Vicky's been up to and what we have. I want to point out not a lot of overlap probably with what most others who care about politics and the movement have been up to because we've both been obsessed, monomaniacally one might say, with state legislatures. So a couple of things have changed since the last time we spoke. You know, One is that Donald Trump, as I think many of your listeners will know, is no longer in the Oval Office. And I think as many of your listeners will know, that didn't actually solve our political crisis, nor did it end the movement that he was the personification of in many ways, nor did it solve the rest of our problems. There's actually a really specific reason why. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? So since last time we spoke, uh, at least one, I think both, I don't remember exactly when we spoke, both chambers of Congress have shifted control to Democrats. The Oval Office is now occupied by a Democrat. We have the reins of power in the places most folks were focusing the last time we spoke. And yet the conversation, the dynamic, and the policy impacts in people's lives are still being driven by that movement. Really, they have a supermajority in the Supreme Court, and they have uh, an overwhelming amount of power in competitive state legislatures. That is 
the reason they're driving these conversations. This is the last time we spoke. Roe v. Wade, I think we're just counting down the days, uh, tragically, until it's overturned despite precedent and uh, most people's lifetimes not having experienced that. Uh, since last time we spoke, the democracy has gotten weaker despite having beaten Donald Trump, not stronger. Number of people who believe the presidential election was somehow cheated or stolen has multiplied by many fold. So what we've been focused on uh, at the state's project is continuing to make the case that this is not a mystery. This is not emanating from Mar a Lago or the One American News studio. I don't even know if they have a studio or if they're shooting from their homes. But this is emanating from a source of real power in state legislatures around the country for a movement that is fundamentally illiberal, proto-authoritarian to actually authoritarian, and engaged in a strategic effort to set the stage to steal the 2024 presidential election through those state legislatures. We've been doing everything we can to try to flip chambers, build power in as many state legislative chambers as possible in 2020. We tried to do that uh, in about 15 of them. It's really interesting. We're not successful in nearly the number of places we wanted to be. But do you know that across 10 states, we were fewer than 50,000 people flipping their votes away from winning every one of those states? Incredibly tragically close. So we're focused on is figuring out how to get over that top. It's really close. It's not going to be a great year. But in Arizona, Michigan, Minnesota, Pennsylvania, states we're talking about today and others, Maine, Nevada, Alaska, uh, North Carolina, the potential is enormous. And so we continue to be, and where I started, monomaniacally focused on making that happen. If I can just ask one kind of organizational question. I, I love that you guys are on together and that you're both focused on the state legislatures, but what is the difference between your organizations and why are they separate and separate again from the DLCC? And what is the different angle that you each bring to this? Well, I'd start by saying what's similar, uh, and I'm sure Vicky will also want to uh, speak to this, but what's similar is that we're obsessed with power in state legislatures. We believe that's not only about federal power, it's about the direction of our country. The reason I say that is that distinguishes us from, if you look at a, at a dollar level, if you look at a number of groups level, if you look on a number of people who engage in this work level, that distinguishes us from well over 95% of everyone. So the similarity is a really meaningful one. There's not lots and lots and lots and lots of folks who are in state legislative work. Some, some things that distinguish us are actually really exciting to talk about because, you know, we're here because we believe we complement each other. There's real value in having this conversation in that way. But the work is actually very separate. The state's project, our work is overwhelmingly what's called hard side. We work directly with candidates uh, and campaigns. We contribute directly to them. We try to make sure the dollars we contribute are being well spent for our network of supporters, largely driven by our Giving Circles program. Grassroots program of regular people who listen to podcasts like this one, feel like they're observers to the destruction of their democracy. We offer them a path to create their own giving group and then impact the state 
they want to by uh, supercharging campaigns and candidate efforts themselves, which is distinct from for majorities uh, tactic to build power. Yeah, exactly. I think Daniel is exactly right that there's um, very much more we have in common at the mission level. If anything, there's a ton of white space, if you will. There's a ton of kind of like room for growth and new efforts in the state legislative landscape because it has been so neglected for so long. We often get the question of how do we overlap and how is it not duplicative? And I think that's like the wrong frame to bring to the conversation when one is talking about democratic power in state legislatures. It's actually like, how do we do more and how do we scale and how do we like intentionally have multiple efforts focused on the same goals? Because that leads to innovative ideas, diversification of spend and overall the muscular effort that's needed down ballot. We operate exclusively on the independent side. My lawyers would remind me to say many times that we don't uh, coordinate on programs. So we're very much aligned on mission goals. We've closed ranks on targets but our programs are very much intentionally separate. If you look at uh, federal races, if you look at a top Senate race, top congressional race, you have many actors on the hard side and the soft side. And I would argue that down ballot, that's more needed than ever when we think about some of the deficits of the traditional democratic model for investment in state legislative races and in state legislative power. Very specifically, I'd point to the fact that Uh, historically, much of state legislative investment was undertaken by Democrats through a trickle-down approach. So if I invest in an overlapping congressional race that I care about, an overlapping governor's race I care about, if I'm investing in Biden in the state in question, in Pennsylvania or Arizona, um, that should benefit the state legislative candidates as well. And that has been wholly disproven. And a key reason for that is because the areas that are essential to win these tough majority-making races require investing in geographies that are historically overlooked. Most of these districts are suburban and exurban that we need to flip, to actually flip chambers. And much of the money comes in really late. I think one of the things both Daniel and I are up against is this is often the last thing to get funded, right? If funded at all. And so that leaves candidates trying to communicate in the final stretch of a race and trying to get out a message and trying to unseat an incumbent. And those are really hard things. So our work has really been focused on trying to identify the untapped opportunity that can raise the floor on democratic performance at the district level. A great example of that is looking at voter registration, um, where at a very big picture macro level, so many of the more left-leaning voter registration efforts have all been funded with 501c3 money and really focused on urban centers and college campuses where that money can be used cost-effectively and efficiently. And it's wholly overlooked the state legislative battleground districts that we most need to win. So we've identified about 1.7 million likely Democratic unregistered voters in the key districts in our seven target states, nearly a million of those just in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Arizona alone in the targeted state legislative districts that will decide the balance of power in these state legislative chambers. And as we started at the top of the conversation may well be what holds back some of the worst case outcomes in 2024. Just to summarize, we've really been focused on identifying and trying to exploit these additional areas of opportunity 
that can complement everything that Daniel's leading, everything that he's building, all the ways in which he's driving performance of candidates and caucuses. And that is incredibly important. We also know that many times it's not enough in some of these toughest Republican trifecta states. Uh, So we need to do more. And that's where our work comes in. I think if I were in your position, looking at another midterm coming up with Democratic federal control, I'd be awfully nervous. I'm awfully nervous alone here just because of the precedent of 94 and 2010 and 2014, where a national wave running the other direction tends to swamp the tactical moves that we might make and overrun the the legislatures in a really drastic way. I wonder like, if our problem isn't necessarily the power in the state legislatures as much as it is in the voters and how they're going to vote in these states and how do we address like that big wave if that's the next election i totally get what you're saying about long-term planning and i agree completely that we have to build up our uh, institutions on our side but isn't that what's coming very potentially down the road is a national wave look yeah i think it's fair to say that the conventional wisdom is this is going to be a tough year. And it's important to point out that tactics are not alone the magic bullet. There's many things that go into this. But there's a few things that we need to point out really clearly. One is the closeness of these states in the way we've talked about. Second is you are talking about, in many of these states, better districts because they've had fair maps drawn instead of a history of terribly gerrymandered maps, which folks are focused on at congressional levels, often even more egregious at the state legislative level. But it's also really important to point out that we can't put all of our eggs in this idea that we either succeed or we give up. That's not how we look at congressional power, and it can't be how we look at state legislative power. And we know that there is so much untapped energy and so much potential resource, even if you just look at a fraction, you know what, Sarah Gideon ended up with more money in her campaign account in 2020 than it would have taken to fully fund a state legislative effort in an entire state. That there is real room here to get involved in this. And it's not just about 2022. It's about 2022 and 2024 and 2026 and 2028 while we try to stabilize this democracy. So absolutely, if you look at the history of midterm elections with this kind of dynamic, uh, that's a daunting history. I would say uh, it's not fate by any means. And in some ways, it's an argument to do that much more, whether or not we're popping champagne corks on November 8th this year or breathing a deep sigh of relief because we've done what's necessary to allow a free and fair election for president in 2024. You want to take a swing at that one, Vicky? Yeah, I mean, plus one's everything that Daniel said, but um, I would just also emphasize, you know, like when is the last time we can point to Democrats 
seriously competing for state legislative power. Can you name a year? I mean, I think we did better in, in 2020 in terms of like making sure there was money in key races, but it came in really late and we still saw so many gaps. We still saw so many underfunded races and candidates. How did we do in 2018 when we when we were all riled up and and there were these sister districts and, you know, there, there were a lot of new attempts to spread the, including you guys. Yeah. I mean, this is the case I would make to you, which is 2018 was like a huge wave year for Democrats. It was an incredibly strong year. And that was felt and seen in the state legislative battleground. But, you know, I'll, I'll point to the Texas State House where we were arguably the biggest investor in the Texas State House races in 2018. And with a, you know, with a modest amount of money, to be honest. And that was the year that 12 seats flipped in the state house and created a path to victory of nine additional seats that we needed to win in 2020. Now, that's great. We should all celebrate that. That's amazing. But think what we could have achieved if we'd been actually playing in years that weren't as good as 2018. Think what we could have achieved if we'd been holding the line in tougher years and building towards opportunity by supporting great candidates as Daniel's doing now and encouraging them to run even in tough years. They may get over the line, they may not, but come back the next year when the environment may be even better. This work never happens to, to actually lay the foundation. And then Democrats in state legislatures are not prepared to capture opportunity when it presents itself. We need to be building towards those opportunities. And part of that is exactly this year. It's exactly holding on to ground as a starting point. We need to be stopping the hemorrhaging <laughs> as a starting point. And that matters because closely divided chambers are going to matter. They are going to matter to hold on to democracy and preserving paths to victory if we don't get all the way there in, in 2022. And I would argue it looks very bad right now. Like it's a tough environment. Things change. We live in turbulent times. There is a war in Europe there was a pandemic, a hundred year pandemic that we are hopefully emerging from. We need to be prepared for turbulent times as well. Things could change between now and November. Let's be prepared at the very least to make these chambers as tight as possible and to capture the opportunity that presents itself. And where we can, let us be building towards majorities for 2024, when hopefully it'll be a better environment at but that strategic thinking, it's hard to do that when we are, all have our hair on fire, when we all live in this existential crisis. But I think as Daniel very nicely articulated as well, when, when we think about these as like very binary contexts in which we decide to play or not play ball, right? And it's actually about very intentionally playing ball, even when it's tough, because that is when you lay the groundwork for wins. And that is where you hold back the worst outcomes. I'm sorry to jump back in on this, but, you know, it's just such an important point. So I'll try to do it briefly. But, you know, you mentioned the voters. The voters obviously deserve a great deal more than a mention. And it, and it is certainly true that the most excited voters in America today are those who believe in the big lie and that the 2020 election was somehow stolen. That's not true, but we know that's the most excited group of voters. I have to say, one way to change that is for folks to realize just how big the stakes are, realize that an actual undermining of free and fair presidential election is a couple of steps away from us today, is being strategized and planned for today. That should excite people. 
And the other piece is it is true. Let's be honest about it. When you talk about national politics, individuals being engaged can help. But we're also talking about seismic or tidal shifts. So it's hard for an individual to be the dispositive change maker. State legislative races, it's actually a lot easier. They're not alone, but through the work of organizing folks into things like giving circles, through the effort of threading this podcast. And, you know, I, I don't know that your state ledge podcast is going to be the most shared one in the history of the great battlefield, but it could be. And boy, in terms of importance for the country, it should be. And so there is, it, it's not a, uh, we're not observers to that fact of who's excited and where the voters are especially at the state legislative level where these tiny shifts change the outcome. Let's talk a little bit then about the stakes because they are top of mind for me, I think many of them, but they may not be, as you say, for everybody. What would you say matters most? What are the stakes as you see them? What are the different things that control or partial control of a a legislature mean So, I mean, I think that we've seen this past year, the tsunami of laws designed to suppress the vote. We saw that kind of morphed into laws designed for election subversion, laws that would allow a legislature to throw out um, election results when there's a contested vote or allegations of fraud. I think the worst case outcome that Daniel and I both think a lot about is uh, the radical constitutional theory, um, the independent state legislative doctrine, uh, which increasingly has been getting more and more traction on the right. And even in the past month has been affirmed by four conservative sitting Supreme Court justices. And very simply, this fringe constitutional theory would allow state legislatures to overturn election results. It sees them as Uh, supreme to all other election authorities at the state level. There have been a number of redistricting cases that have come up that have allowed these justices to affirm just this. And when you think about the levers of power and the worst case outcomes in a contested 2024 presidential election, it is this latest chapter, it is the independent state legislative doctrine that should keep us all awake at night and worried about exactly what could happen. And we should compete for every governor's race, for every secretary's of state race, for all of those levers of power we can. But we should also be incredibly clear-eyed that in the face of this doctrine, those levers of power will not be enough. It will all come down to state legislatures. And Republicans control the legislature in every single major battleground state. My hair goes on end a little bit there. So just to give you a sense, states that don't have unified Republican control, right? Either a mixed legislature like Minnesota, Democratic legislature. By the way, all of those legislatures have said they will not interfere in the presidential election. They have no role in it. 227 electoral votes total only. 227. There are over 300 electoral votes with members of the majority in the legislature who have said that the legislature has a role, which it has not had in uh, uh, basically any presidential election in our country's history in this. 
And it goes beyond that, though. Another good activity is, you know, if you care about democracy, but I'm sure the folks who listen care a lot about issues. There's an issue that's driven them to be so interested in this work. And I just want to just take a second and say, think about the issue that you most care about. For a small number of people, it's foreign policy. Certainly uh, what's happening in Ukraine right now is something that has captured all of our attentions and is a, a global tragedy. But you think about the number one issue why you're really interested in this work and in spending your time on this. Unless it's foreign policy, it is something where we have seen either more progress or more damage in the last decade in state legislatures than any other level of government. If it's choice, if it's the environment, if it's clean water, if it's good jobs, if it's education, if it's college, if it's infrastructure, even infrastructure, because a lot of the federal action requires state action. And because the states themselves are constantly moving bills at a rate and at a level of significance well beyond what you can get at the federal level. So everything Vicky said, literally the existence of the democracy is on the line. And stepping back from the democracy to any issue you care about where government has an impact, it's almost certain state legislatures have had a bigger impact on that in this country in the last decade than the federal government has. It strikes me it's also not even just the issue, but the, the culture war that a state like Florida that is one party Republican dominant can wage with an outlandish governor like they have who dominates that state can make laws that fight the culture war and try to shift the politics in a way that they could not if they didn't have such control. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I think it's a symptom of the extremism that we see breeding in Republican-controlled state legislatures. Florida's a great example. Florida, we kind of, I think, collectively tend to think of as a more Republican-leaning state these days. But 2018, Nelson's race, Gillum's race, were both in recount. It is a state that, you know, has been a very close, very divided, very kind of mixed purple state historically. And even there, we see the most extreme laws coming forward. And these laws matter federally. They are what is going up to the Supreme Court for decisions that affect all of the federal law. Um, just look at abortion. That came out of you know a case. We see the abortion ban in Texas, but it was the case in Mississippi that sits before the Supreme Court. And this is where this extremism and what happens in these Republican-controlled legislatures is part of a rotten system. It is influencing not just the people in Florida, the people in Mississippi, the people in Texas, which is a concern to, to all of us, but these things have ripple effects and it's part of a systemic strategy at this point. So they should not be regarded at all as kind of fringe culture wars being fought, you know, in one state or another. They are spreading, number one, across Republican-controlled legislatures where an extreme law gets through, and it then becomes a template for what happens elsewhere. And it's also what percolates up to what we now have as a very conservative-dominated Supreme Court and affects federal law and affects all of our lives, regardless of where you live, regardless of what you're doing locally. So should you know connecting these dots and really thinking about the issues you care about, but also how what happens in Republican-controlled legislatures in other states starts affecting the issues you care about everywhere. It's really interesting, isn't it, that in 
conservative media, you take the most liberal locality or most liberal state in the country, passing the bill that is, you know, most consistent with that political subdivision, and it becomes a national story in the conservative media ecosystem. I take, you know, Cambridge, Massachusetts or Berkeley, California, whatever the cliche would be, and it becomes uh, in the false eyes of the conservative media ecosystem who we are. Meanwhile, States Project, we were in Mississippi in 2019. It was lonely because others weren't. They had just moved this bill that is going to be the supposed justification to end Roe, most likely. Who had heard about this bill among your listeners, among the country, in the overall culture in 2019? It's amazing, right? A whole state, by the way, a whole state passing a bill that's not just a reflection of their very conservative political subdivision, but that is a test case for the United States Supreme Court, nothing. Meanwhile, some small town in Washington State or upstate New York passes some bill And it is the defining characteristic of the media ecosystem. Your point about the culture and sort of the civic life is so important and is reflected in every way that they are talking about these issues and that we are. It's why, you know, I had been in the New York State Senate for eight years the day Trump was elected. I was elected to my, I guess, my fifth term the same day he was. His rhetoric never shocked me. The only thing that shocked me about his rhetoric was that it was playing on a national stage. The reason it didn't shock me is we heard very similar types of things from some of my colleagues in the New York State Legislature over the years. It's not a movement that he created. It's a type of extremism and dangerous proto-authoritarian populism that has been germinating and cultivating in legislative chambers for decades. I understand what you're saying, and have been talking about it with lots of people about this extremism. I think it's well understood by the politicians and the activists and the leaders on our side. I don't think it's understood by the electorate at large. I think that they are much more likely to vote on regular questions of economics and disease and fear of others like immigration, things like that. Does it make sense for us to campaign on voter suppression and electoral structures and the fate of our democracy, which is what we see happening, which we see paralleled around the world, which are, you know, which are worrying those of us who pay attention in this way every day, or does it make sense to to campaign on what I'm imagining an everyday person is really thinking about? Or how do we connect those together in a way that's effective and works? You know, I think focusing on people's lived experience is really important. You know, when you run for office, you're running to get hired by the people in your district. It's totally appropriate and natural that the people in the district want someone who's going to serve their needs. If there's a bridge that's not working, if the schools stink, if they can't get a job and stay in the community that they love. That's a huge problem. So I I do think that it is absolutely critical that we're talking to people about where they are. 
and the life they're experiencing and that folks serve them. That's what service is. It's also true that if your opponent is chasing a fantasy about the 2020 election, they're not going to care about those things as much. They're not going to focus on them as much. And so I do think that we can't be afraid. It's not going to pop in a poll. It's not someone's lived experience today. But we can't be afraid to call out this sort of extremism, anti-democratic threads for what they are. I think it's our responsibility to connect them to people's lived experience. You know, it makes sense that the folks on the right who have been fed the big lie are more animated about this today than the folks everywhere else in the country who just want to have a reasonable presidential election 2024. If the independent state legislature doctrine comes to pass, you can be sure that having stolen the election will become a salient political issue in 2025. Problem is, it'll be too late. These issues are more real in the past than in the future when you talk about things like democracy and structure. But what is real for folks every day is the need for good transit and healthy, clean water and good schools. And it is true today that folks who are obsessing about QAnon or Pizzagate are not focused on schools and transit and clean water. Vicki? Yeah, I mean, I would, I would disagree with that. I think that these races are often won or lost by a handful of votes, right? And so we really need to be thinking about how to be mobilizing and engaging voters who are less engaged, particularly in a midterm context, and that that is going to be squarely tied to things that affect their daily lives. That being said, I think these races are, they're very kind of low salience. A lot of people have no idea who the representative is, and they have no idea that they're a QAnon affiliate or they are linked to the Oath Keepers. I think really making a case, uh, you know, about why the candidate who we're supporting is um, going to be a champion for the things that affect their daily lives, but also why the Republican nominee is completely unfit to serve and more extreme than anyone realizes, I think has to be a piece of this as well in terms of really making clear who is the representative in this district that we're working to unseat. What do they believe? What have they been distracted by? But also, you know, who are they affiliated with and, and how is this completely out of sync with the district they now represent? I mean, I'm completely persuaded that it is not in our interest in any locality to have these people elected or in power and that it, the stakes are high and that it's a difficult fight. When you raise money, what are you going to spend it on? How is it going to make a difference? What are the plans for fighting this fight? Yeah. So, you know, our, our work is really simply, um, there are three tracks to it. Um, and again, this surrounds a lot of the, the work that Daniel is doing to support candidates and caucuses and really drive performance. From our side, uh, our bread and butter since we got started is uh, running hard-hitting campaign programs um, that are focused on persuading voters. Uh, a lot of that is making clear who is representing them now on the Republican side, how that person is unfit to serve, what they stand for, drawing a contrast with the, the Democratic nominee. And these are programs we've tested with randomized control trials and 
know can really contribute key margin in close races. Um, we've expanded our model to two new areas that we're building out and that come back to where I started in terms of us being really provoked by the notion of what else can add value in these races and what are the untapped levers that can help drive performance. So one is targeted voter registration at the district level, uh, where there's a big opportunity to boost advantage on the Democratic side that's been historically underexploited by Democrats and where uh, that is an opportunity to add value in races right now, put points on the board for November, but it's also an investment in an area that pays dividends for 2024 and beyond. And there's a ton of evidence out there about the potential for voter registration to change the long-term political competitiveness of a geography. So both near-term and long-term benefits. And then the last piece is really focused on some longer-term persuasion. So getting out of this habit of communicating a couple of weeks before a race closes and kind of this boom and bust economy that uh, is political campaigns and is, is very much political campaigns historically in, in state legislative races and building a longer term narrative with key voters in these districts, again, so that we're not trying to introduce why a Republican is too extreme and unfit to serve in, in the closing arguments, but instead really building a drumbeat about that, um, about the issues that matter for Democrats as well. Uh, over a much longer time horizon. And at the stage project, we're focused on making sure that these campaign efforts themselves have the funding they need to let the candidate communicate with as many folks as possible directly. You know, that is a great uh, opportunity. We know that in a lot of state legislative districts in the country, the candidate themselves, by knocking on doors and going to community events, can actually meet a critical mass of voters themselves. We also know that's the single best way to break out of this national conversation and bring it to a local one. So we focus a great deal on both trying to get the resources these campaigns need, and then we try to make sure that those campaigns are spending the dollars in the best possible way and that the candidates are spending their time in the best possible way. The nice thing is the best possible way for candidates is exactly what we'd want it to be, which is, uh, by the way, not talking to me or Vicky or uh, you, but talking to voters in their districts with resources, kinds of resources that giving circles deliver. They have a lot more ability to do that because the other thing candidates, if we're being honest, spend a lot of their time doing is dialing for dollars. We can free them from that. They can focus more on working for their constituents. It's really important that they know that when they're communicating with constituents, they need to communicate about what those constituents need and not get distracted by, uh, frankly, any of this conversation, which is critically important, but not necessarily how a voter is going to make a choice in a key district for governing power in a key state. Early on in this conversation, you alluded to 40 years of Republicans taking state legislatures seriously taking the, the campaign seriously, I, investing large sums, I remember, in elections right before redistricting, sort of pushing on that lever of power hard. I know that they've built um, durable institutions that are well-funded on their side. What are we missing? What are we failing to do on our side? And who are you looking to to help you with that? Like, are you looking to small donors, what can regular people do? What can our good billionaires and everybody in between to help properly 
fund our side of this battlefield? You know, I say it's been 40 years sometimes. I think just to make myself feel a little it's younger. It's a little longer, maybe. It's actually now been 50 years, <laughs> sadly. But what that means about my own age is unfortunate. So, you know, real, really 1972 is when you see the pivot point. You see right-wing activists like Paul Weyrich found the American Legislative Exchange Council, actually found Heritage. You see both the shift in their ideology and then also in their tactics and structure. And you see sort of the waves of it, as you point out, over each decade since. Uh, you know, I, I think that one thing folks have to understand is there really is a difference. When you look at the Koch network, when you look at their funding structures, especially when it comes to states, so much of that on the other side has a specific return on investment. And by return on investment, I mean financial. A huge number of the biggest funders and uh, folks who focus on state legislatures on the right are regulated by state government whether uh, state environmental regulators for folks who do mineral extraction or state insurance regulators. On our side, that's just not how the donor ecosystem or the activist ecosystem works. People follow the thing that they care about. This is how you end up with a different candidate for a statewide race for governor, U.S. Senate or president kind of taking flight for a few weeks at a time and raising eye-popping sums of money, sufficient sums of money individually to fully fund every competitive state legislative race in the country. Because folks are following their instinct and their goals, uh, not following the profit. So the first thing that I've, I've always thought we need to make the state legislative issue work is we need our activists and our grassroots donors to think about this a little more strategically because there isn't that profit motive to do so. And thank goodness, that is a benefit to our side. Folks are doing what they think is the right thing. But the challenge is these under the radar races with these candidates you've never heard of, with videos much less likely to go viral on social media. We really need folks to think of themselves, not as fulfilling a need in their short term because something came across their Twitter feed or social media feed, but, uh, that they are focusing on their contribution to a strategic goal to preserve this country's democracy and pass good policy. That's a mindset shift more than a structural one, but without it, I don't know how this uh, movement can be sustained. So I assume what you're saying is don't give your money to the hot candidate that has a terrible chance of winning in South Carolina Senate race but instead give to an organization that is targeting that money strategically like yours? Is that kind of what is underlaying what you're saying? What I would say is if it is the hot thing, probably lots of others are already filling the need. And so take that extra moment to really think about where your dollars would go the farthest and have the biggest impact. Now that tends to be state legislatures and do the work necessary, that extra step to think about your budget, think about what you're able to contribute, where you're able to volunteer, and don't do the thing that's most obviously in front of you. Do the thing that's most aligned with the strategic need to save the democracy, to preserve and protect health care, to do the things that you care about happening in the world. 
Yeah, that that strategic frame is so important. And just if we all think about the past few election cycles, there's always like a overarching shiny goal, right? There are these shiny objects of individual candidates, often in long shot races. But there's also like, you know, 2018, we have to swing the house to put a check on Trump. 2020, we have to defeat Trump. We wake up and, you know, arguably things get worse in some ways and not better. And part of this is like, we are not doing the sustained strategic work that needs to happen over multiple cycles to really change the game in state legislatures. And there needs to be a mindset shift about how we think about progress, building on what Daniel outlined. If the Republicans have the transactional money because they know that investing in state legislatures and state power will impact their bottom line at times. I think the case that we need to continue to make and where I hope we see more and more people getting bought in is, you know, state legislative power is one of the best investments that affects every single issue you care about. If you care about philanthropy, if you care about social justice, if you care about income inequality, all these things have a root in state legislative power and connecting those dots and making it not just something that now is in vogue because it's 2022 and suddenly we're seeing that, you know, state legislatures are important and these threats of election subversion are real and coming to the table with the resources, energy, attention that are deserved right now, but then sustaining that for the future as well. It's my outsider sense that the that Democratic donors are less engaged than say in the run up to 2018 or 2020, there's a, a little bit of relaxation after taking back the federal offices, presidency and the Congress, even if by a hair. Is that what you guys are seeing and what can turn around that if it's true? Absolutely. You know, speaking of Twitter feeds, Donald Trump's was a daily reminder to folks to be engaged and to do something uh, to protect the future from the worst possible outcomes. That threat is every bit as real as it was running up to 2018, but I don't think it's as present in folks' lives. I, I actually am a big believer that every person has some resources and a network and some credibility. And I think that folks who hear this and are convinced by it need to take it on themselves to go engage others and organize their own communities. I think sometimes there's this myth that organizing is only about uh, uh, building power through canvassing in communities that will decide a swing state election. Organizing is simply the activity of taking what you know and care about and bringing others into that. I think we need a lot more of that because it's not gonna be happening in the headlines, in the A block on cable news, or uh, dominating social media feeds. Who are our best allies in the progressive ecosystem in doing that kind of organizing in the states that are affecting the battles for control of the state legislatures? Who out there is doing good work that you could point to? I know there's a lot of folks. So many folks are. I, it's, I, it's always hard to name some off the cuff for fear of well, not naming a, the others. You know, examples and categories. It is absolutely 
a positive evolution that the kind of canvassing uh, the kind of organizing that uh, fair fight Stacey Abrams group got a lot of attention for. And I know it has said itself and was part of a coalition of many groups in Georgia and that we see versions of in states around the country is really important work. Now that's organizing is sort of the core way people think about and talk about organizing. I'd say that's one part. A second uh, piece of this that can't be overlooked is folks who are doing what you're doing, both locally and nationally, which is having conversations and creating an ecosystem of information and, and conversation and media around these issues. That overall has a big impact. And then I would say third, we are taught to think of politicians, candidates, people running for office as not folks doing good work. But at the state legislative level, at the local level, I would argue at the national level, too, a lot of folks are very public service oriented. But certainly at the state legislative and local level, you're talking about someone who wasn't a politician until they got so frustrated in their community, they decided to go out and file for office. And that's really good work. And finding folks not just in swing states outside of where you live, but in a swing state if you live there or anywhere you live, who are doing the work of running for office locally and becoming part of that effort is a huge part of becoming part of this effort, even if you don't live in one of these 25 districts that are most likely to decide the fate of our democracy. Vicki, what's making you most optimistic, if anything is? Seeing the people that are stepping up in this moment in those categories that Daniel described and really putting themselves out there and really doubling down, even in a type of year like 2022, when I think, as you described it, Nathaniel, it is a year when people are feeling tired of politics, at times feeling like this is going to be a really hard year, it's going to be a hard election, but running against the grain, that gives me a ton of optimism and hope. And also, as cheesy as this may sound, I think just reflecting on the arc of American history and really thinking about where we've had struggles before and the fact that it is citizens. It's folks like the three of us and folks listening to this podcast stepping up and like fighting against the inertia and apathy that we all can feel at times and really fighting for our values, fighting for what we believe in, that that is truly what makes the difference and that we have, we have faced incredibly hard times before. We had a civil war. I mean, we've, we've had so many moments that have challenged and tested American democracy. And I see that as something to be optimistic about in terms of even when we face our darkest moments, that it is up to us to make change and fight to preserve, reform democracy going forward. And that hard things are possible when we all do that together. Can you take a swing at that too? Daniel? I think there's a few reasons to be optimistic. The one that keeps me going is that we are participants in the outcome here. We are on the precipice of a potentially catastrophic outcome, but we are not yet there. And it will be our choices over the next days, weeks, months, and years that determine whether we pull back from this, having learned and improved and on a better path, or whether we go over it. To my mind, 
this moment is the most important moment, certainly in my lifetime, probably in generations beyond that. And one where all of us together can do something to make the outcome better than it otherwise would be. That's optimism. That's hopefulness. And that lets me sleep at night every night when I go to bed and gets me up every morning energized and ready to work. And I hope it does for others as well. Well, I personally am very happy that both of you are doing what you're doing because I agree that it's that kind of moment. And I hope that people see this, who might be listening, see this as an opportunity to also wade into the fight because the whole direction of the country is at stake. And I appreciate you guys coming on to talk about it. Thank you. Thanks so much, Nathaniel. That was Vicki Hausman. She's at forwardmajority.org. And Daniel Squadron. He's at statesproject.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at resistancedashboard.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.